Um, here we go. As we begin today, um, I just wanted to show you a few pictures of things in our world, uh, things that are a part of nature and I think are incredible to say the least. This, maybe, I don't know if you've seen this before, this is Pink Lake. Hilia, who's been there before? Stick up your hand. No one. Who's seen this before? Stick up your hand. That's a couple of people, right? Pink Lake Hillier. Now, it's a lake that's legitimately pink. It's in Australia, uh, on an island off the southern coast of Western Australia. This is no trick of the eye. Uh, this is no trick by the light. Uh, this is well and truly bubblegum pink in color. Uh, scientists can't totally figure out why that's the case, why it looks the way that it does, but the best guess, best guess sorry, is that it has to do with uh, the extremely high levels of salt that are in the water, that somehow turn it into pink using chemistry and stuff that I know very little about. But amazing, right? Amazing. Uh, another one. Uh, this is Abraham Lake in Alberta, Canada. Who's been there? Who knows about it? Not many people. Okay. So what you see here, um, they're not statues. These are frozen air bubbles. These are frozen air bubbles underwater. See, what, what's happened is that these bubbles uh, are trapped because the lake, the surface of the lake, it, it's typically frozen, um, which means that, you know, the methane ga gas that normally floats to the top and into the air, because the lake is frozen, cannot float as it normally does. Uh, and so it moves between melting, it moves between freezing, and they create these frozen images of bubbles under the surface that are live and dynamic and changing and shifting. It's amazing, right? Absolutely nuts. Uh, last one. This is, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Va'ad'u in the Maldives. Uh, this is not Photoshop. This is plankton, which have some ability to, called bioluminescence which allows them to glow as a way to defend themselves from being eaten. And so when there, is, there are many, many plankton being washed to shore, they begin to glow in the agitation from the waves, and as we see, it makes it look like there are stars in the water. Incredible, incredible stuff. Friends, our world is, quite frankly, in many ways, unbelievable, isn't it? It's breathtaking. Now, I wonder, I wonder if we had to describe some of those uh, bits of nature, these, these majestic pieces of creation, uh, to people in our world who do not know that they exist, using only our words. How would you do it? It's pretty tough, I think, to paint a verbal picture of things that are, are so incredible that is so breathtaking using just our words. See, we're looking at the topic, uh, we're continuing really on a topic, on, on the resurrection of our bodies. And that's a topic that is pretty tough to paint a verbal picture of, isn't it? I mean, if you were a Jesus follower, how would we describe the resurrection of our bodies to someone who denies it? Or maybe someone who doesn't know anything about it. What, what words, I wonder, would you use um, to help them grasp it, to help them picture it? Just as importantly, I wonder, how, how do we picture it? How do we make it more real to ourselves? We're continuing in, in 1 Corinthians 15 that Erica read out for us to see 
Paul's heart in urging the Corinthian church to see just how important it is to believe wholeheartedly in the resurrection of the body. Right? Last week we heard just how much was at stake if people didn't believe that, if the church didn't believe that. Now, for those of you who missed last week, jump online, uh, have a listen, it's free, it'll be worth your while. But just as a reminder, there were huge stakes, weren't there, for not believing it. See, if they denied the resurrection body, the very message of the gospel they believed was compromised. If they deny the resurrection of the body, their very faith, Paul says, becomes futile. If they deny the resurrection of the body, God's plan for the universe is also compromised. See, it's not just believing that Jesus rose from the dead, it's believing that they also would rise, that we too will rise. This is absolutely central to what we believe if we are Jesus' followers. But Paul's not done. Because as crucial and as central as it is to to acknowledge and believe in the resurrection of the dead, in the resurrection of our own bodies, as I said earlier, it can be kind of difficult to get our heads around it, can't it? It it can just seem, I don't know, distant, abstract, foreign, and and we don't really have much of a reference in popular culture uh, to, to understand it, you know, apart from a zombie apocalypse. And so how do we get our heads around it? What should we expect? Well, fortunately for us, like I said, Paul's not done. And the Corinthians struggle with getting their heads around it just as much. And so Paul's going to put some flesh to the bones for what we should expect in our passage today. And so just for a bit of a roadmap, for those taking notes, we'll be looking firstly at um, the form of our resurrection bodies, the form of our resurrection bodies. And then we're going to look at the function for our resurrection bodies. Yeah, The form of our resurrection bodies, the function for our resurrection bodies. And these points are going to be on the screen behind me as we go. Um, But I'm excited what God might be doing among us today. And and I'm excited that He might be speaking to us today. And so I'm going to pray uh, so that He would do just that among us. So let me pray. Father God, we thank You uh, for the privilege it is uh, to be in Your Word. A Word that is living active, sharp, and can penetrate our very souls. Father, we pray this morning that you would do just that for our lives. Father, help us to be willing and receptive and humble enough uh, to, to, to open our minds and our hearts to what you might have to say and that you might give us a better picture of the hope that we have for eternity uh, from your word today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, firstly, the form of our resurrection bodies. The form of our resurrection bodies. Now, look at, with me at verse 35. Verse 35. Uh, but someone will ask, Paul writes, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Now, Paul's just spent all this time talking about how important the resurrection body is. And it's only really natural, right, that someone now asks, well, Paul, okay, it's important, it's critical, I get it, but... What's it going to look like? What form is it going to take? And Paul anticipates that. Now, I wonder if you've ever asked that question. What what form, if you're a Jesus follower, what form will my body look like uh, in the new creation? What form will it look like for eternity? What what will it look like? Now, I remember in youth group, uh, when we'd have this discussion on a passage like this, uh, we'd often be asked to draw uh, what we'd look like. Now, I don't have a picture of what I drew, uh, but to give you a verbal picture of what I drew, it would and I was in a group full of boys, and we were year seven, and it was a, what, what would this ideal picture of our body look like? Well, um, we'd all have massive biceps. We'd have a grated and chiseled six-pack. Uh, 
uh, would have a body that would rival the most elite of Olympians. Um, Don't judge me. Um, But Paul's immediate response to that question, what's it going to look like? What form will it have? Um, It's kind of surprising how he initially responds. How does he answer? He, He says this. He says, how foolish. That's what we say. That's how he begins. How foolish. I mean, is that a foolish question to be asking Paul? Is, is that a stupid question to be asking Paul? I mean, it seems innocent enough. It, it seems quite logical, really. So, so should we not be asking what should it look like? Well, uh, I don't think so, because Paul does actually end up answering it, doesn't he? He actually sheds a lot of light on what our bodies will look like. So what's going on? Why does Paul call uh, them foolish? Now, the Corinthians would have asked this question from a particular way of looking at the world. As we heard really briefly last week, what dominated the landscape of the world was that spiritual things were greater than physical things. To put it another way, spirit stuff uh, was good and physical stuff not so good. And so the popular way this view played itself out was that people saw their bodies as prisons. Bodies were just cages that, that, that would hold your soul captive inside it. And so in this way of thinking, what's death then? Death, that's a release. It's freedom for the soul that's immortal, that's superior, and it allows the soul to drift to a better spiritual haven away from the physical decay of the world. Now, in some ways, this is kind of close with a lot of modern spirituality, right? The goal in a lot of what we see of spirituality, um, even in Sydney, is that the soul and the mind transcend the material and the physical. Like, we need to escape the body somehow to reach our full potential. But we see this type of thinking in the classic movie Gladiator, right? Where I hope you've seen it, spoiler alert. At the end of the film, after that Maximus dies, he's rejoined in the spirit world with his wife and child. Far from the reaches of the tyrannical Roman Empire, And so Maximus welcomes death because it's better. Because his spirit goes to be with his family. That's the hope um, from this view that the Corinthian church was in and looking at the world. And so as we come back to verse 35, why, why does Paul call them fools? Well, it's likely that the Corinthians are asking this question of what raised bodies will look like, what form they'll take, because they're actually still denying that this is what God's going to do. They're probably still thinking that the bodily resurrection of the dead is completely wrong because it contradicts everything the culture around them is telling them. And that's why Paul tells them and responds, how foolish. It's as if Paul is saying, how can your view of the world so mislead you from something that is so crucial to what I know you already believe as Jesus follows? That's utterly foolish, says Paul. So in other words, it's not the question what form will it be? What form will it take? That's not foolish in and of itself. It's the view of the world that's behind the question, under the question. And perhaps the view of the world behind much of our modern spirituality in Sydney. That's what Paul insults as foolish. See, friends, something for us to think about briefly today, as a bit of a side point, is where might we as a church, much like the Corinthian church, where might we adopt a view of the world that our culture affirms, that contradicts things that are central to the message we believe as Jesus follows. Where are we most tempted to align with the values of the world 
that just can't be justified from a Christian view of the world? Where are we tempted to do that? Now, um, admittedly, I, I haven't been doing this pastoring thing for very long, um, but one thing that I have seen and do see creeping into uh, the church, um, wider, but also our church, and, and me included, uh, that I think is a bit of a contradiction uh, with what the Christian view of the world tells us to, is this desire to be, to be happy above everything. It's a desire to be happy above all else. Our happiness can drive where we live, where, what we do for work, the purchases we make. Our happiness can drive all our big decision-making, but that's probably not the most telling place to see, that, to see that happiness is driving us because, you know, even in those big decisions in life, there are other motivations that are going on. See, what's probably more telling where we see happiness driving us um, is when we respond, what, how we respond when our happiness is at risk. When a promotion bypasses us. When our leave is not approved. Maybe when we're treated unfairly. Or perhaps uh, even more seriously, when sickness sets in. Trouble, instability happen, either to us or to those around us. All of those things which threaten our happiness. I wonder if we're honest to ourselves, friends, how, how have we responded when these things have happened? Or maybe if it hasn't happened to you, how would you respond when these things happen to you? And, and what do those responses reveal? Does it reveal that happiness drives us above all else? Because it's not happiness that is at the heart of the Christian message, is it? Our, at least our happiness. We serve a selfless Savior who gave His happiness for us and compels us to selflessly serve others even at the expense of our happiness, if need be. This is a contradiction to what is central to the Christian view of the world. See, friends, one thing that the messy Corinthian church that we've been looking at for all these weeks now, one thing that we learn from them, one thing that they teach us, is that we do not get to pick and choose the central parts of Christianity we like and leave behind the central parts of Christianity we don't like. It doesn't, it doesn't work together. It doesn't hold that way. In Paul's words, that's foolish. But coming back now to the form of our resurrection bodies, coming back to the form of our resurrection bodies, what does Paul say? What, what's his answer to that, to that? Well, he gives two answers that seem to be in tension with each other and almost, uh, almost contradictory. He says that the form of our resurrection bodies are both familiar yet unfamiliar. They're familiar yet unfamiliar. Um, one of the shows that I uh, spent way too much time watching in my final year of high school to avoid studying at all costs uh, was the show The Biggest Loser. Why are you laughing? Um, the Biggest Loser. Now, who's, who's, seen, who's seen it? Who's watched a season of The Biggest Loser ever? Wow, really popular show. Um, now, if you're not familiar with the show, it's a reality TV show about weight loss. And the one uh, who loses the most weight by percentage, because that's important. Uh, the biggest loser, in other words, over the course of the season, wins. Now, I love The Biggest Loser. I loved all the drama of it. I loved uh, how they all worked out really hard. I loved that they put lots of junk food in front of them to tempt them as well. It was such good reality TV uh, back in 2008. But the best bit of the show uh, was the finale. 
the finale of the show. Now, this is where, you, you know, you might have a final, final few contestants, might be three contestants or whatever. They leave, they leave the house that they've been staying at for months now. They leave, they go back into the real world, and they test in the real world whether their new lifestyle habits would last. And then they come back to do one final weigh-in at this finale to determine the winner. And the suspense is just fantastic. Um, you see, what they do is they, they put like a silhouette they project a silhouette onto, like this, onto a stage um, of, uh, of, I guess, the size that they were when they first entered the house in the very, very first episode. And what would happen is you'd see this shadow, this silhouette on, the, on, the, on, the, on, this, on this stage, uh, and what, what would happen is uh, it would suddenly open up, and this new person is standing there, and they're like a small fraction of their former silhouettes. And they're all dressed up, they're all styled up, they're transformed for the finale. Like I said, amazing reality TV. Now, sorry, I'm really, I'm really excited about this. Why do I bring all of this up? Well, I hope you can tell that I love The Biggest Loser, but it shows us, more importantly, that this concept of familiar, yet totally unfamiliar, while it seems like attention actually makes a lot of sense of what we see and know too. See, the individuals were very much on The Biggest Loser. In this finale, we're very much the same person, weren't they? Aren't they? They're recognizable. They're familiar. Yet they're drastically remade. They're in some, sense, some instances 50% of their previous body weight, which for some was nearly 100 kilos lighter. Their confidence in some instances had completely transformed and to people who had not seen them throughout this entire process, they, would have, they, wouldn't have, they couldn't have recognized the person. Now, this illustration isn't original. I'm pretty much stealing what Paul makes the point of uh, with a seed in verses 36 to 38. See, without, uh, without becoming experts in the germination process, how on earth are you meant to tell that this becomes this. How, how are you meant to tell that this becomes this? <laughs> or how are you able to tell that this becomes this? See, familiar and unfamiliar Paul's illustration of the seeds, however, goes one step further than what my Biggest Loser comparison can give. You see, for the acorn to become an oak tree, the seed must be buried into the ground. The seed, in one sense, actually dies. It decomposes into the ground, and yet it is from this very spot that a new life emerges from the ground, bearing nothing in resemblance to the seed, yet remaining the same in its entity and its DNA. See, for Paul, the idea that there is a resurrection from the dead and a transformation of our bodies in the future isn't as crazy as we or the Corinthians might think. But it's more than a seed. He moves on to other aspects of the world and nature from verses 39 onwards. See, he looks at different kinds of bodies that fill both our world and beyond our world. He, he looks at the bodies of humanity first. And then he moves to the bodies in the diversity in the animal kingdom. And then he goes to the bodies of celestial heavenly bodies in the sun, the moon, the stars and the galaxies that extend beyond us. And he says that in each body, both in our world and beyond our world, they all have different glories. 
They all have different splendors appropriate to what they are and what they do. See, although there are things that we share in common with animals, like the ability to breathe and limbs and the like, right? there's a gap between us and them in terms of splendor and glory, isn't there? And although there are things in common that the heavenly bodies share, there is still a gap in splendor and glory between them. We don't orbit around any star. We orbit around the sun. If God determined all these things, gave each body its own glory, each body its own splendor, why is it hard to consider that God would create another kind of body? A a body that shares in common with the body as we know it, but yet with a massive gap in splendor and glory. A resurrected human body. Why is that difficult, says Paul? See, for Paul... The created world speaks of an inbuilt commitment by God towards our transformation. For Paul, the created world speaks of an inbuilt commitment by God towards our transformation. You see, while the resurrection body will have some traces of familiarity, the example that Paul uses of seed that changes radically into a different plant The radical differences between glory from body to body points to the fact that we will also be far different, far more glorious than we can even imagine right now. And so Paul seems to be saying to the church at Corinth, see what God has in store for you. Now, in what ways, in what ways will it be um, unfamiliar? In what ways will it be unfamiliar? So we get the concept. In what ways will it be unfamiliar? In what ways will we be radically more glorious? Now, um, Paul kind of sums it up for us in verses 42 to 44. Have a read. Uh, Verses 42 to 44. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. See, for Paul, the resurrected body is not going to be like our current body, just with a little bit of upgrading. The contrast is going to be like night and day. See, what's perishable, what, what, what can corrupt, what can decay, that's going to be raised imperishable. What is dishonorable, that's subject to shame, that will be raised in glory. What's weak, what's prone to injury, sickness and failure will be raised in power. What's natural will become supernatural. It will still be physical as we've talked about, but it will be a spiritual physicalness. A physical body that will be transformed and powered by the Spirit. Uh, just like a sailing boat is, is a boat, yet powered and steered by the wind blowing at its sails. So a spiritual body is physical, yet powered and steered by the Spirit. See, what Paul says about our new bodies are big claims, aren't they? They're big, big claims. Weakness, power, dishonor, glory. How does Paul make these claims? Well, he sees them in the risen Jesus, doesn't he? Earlier in the chapter, in verse 21, Paul describes Jesus as the first harvest of fruit that guarantees and tells us what the rest of the crop's going to look like. He'll get into it again in verses 45 to 49, that Jesus' resurrected life shows and guarantees what our resurrected lives will ultimately look like. See, if you know the gospel accounts, if you know the biographies of Jesus, you'll know that after Jesus rose and appeared, there was a lot about him that was very, very familiar. Jesus could prove his identity to those who knew him. He ate with them. 
The scar marks with the nails were still there. In his own words, he told them, look at my hands, look at my feet. It's I. Touch me and see, a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. But there was a lot that was radically unfamiliar too, wasn't there? That Jesus was able to disappear from sight. That he's able to appear unexpectedly, even through locked doors. That he ascends into the heavens and is living and reigning with God. See, friends, in many ways, Jesus is just as he was. But in all ways, Jesus is radically new and better. And so Paul, as he looks to Jesus, Paul, as he looks to the first fruits of the resurrected body in who Jesus is, tells us what is anticipated for us. Friends, in the words of Paul at the end of verse 49, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven, the image of Jesus. So we've looked at our first point, the form, what our form uh, of our resurrection bodies will be. We turn now to our second point, the function for our resurrection bodies, the function for our resurrection bodies. Now, um, recently, my, my, my wife Jody and I, we, we visited a hot spring. Uh, that was kind of fun. I've never been to a hot spring before. Um, but I expected, you know, at a hot spring, you just you lie there in really hot, bubbly water and just relax, and you, and you calm down, and, and, and it's, all, it's all nice, and there's peaceful music and nature around you, which, which it had. But one of the main attractions of this hot spring uh, was this thing called contrast therapy. Uh, contrast therapy. Now, contrast therapy, it sounds really bizarre, but contrast therapy is where you go between hot and cold environments, which progressively gets warmer and colder with each stage which I don't know about you, sounds like the best way to get sick. Um, <laughs> but this hot spring called their contrast therapy a fire and ice experience. So what would happen is that you would go from a spa and then you'd go to an ice-cold plunge pool. Uh, and then you'd go to a sauna. And then you'd go to an ice cave, legitimately an ice cave. Um, just so that the hot seems hotter than it is, when you're in the hot place, and the cold seems colder than it is when you're in the cold place. Now, now that I'm saying that loud, it sounds like self-induced torture. Um, but at every point of this experience, right, in this contrast therapy, there were guidelines about how long you should spend at each section, how, how much time you should spend at each section. For example, the ice cave uh, was blasting negative 25 degrees Celsius wind, which is absolutely nuts, as an aside, because you are just in your swimmers. Um, and you feel like your limbs are going to fall off. Um, but that was something you can't stay in for too long, right? Three minutes tops is what they said, just for safety. Apparently elite athletes do this all the time. I don't get it. But friends, the point of why I say that is uh, our bodies aren't fit for certain climates, are they? <laughs> There's only so long that we can spend in something that's extremely cold or extremely hot uh, for our own safety, See, as Paul moves to the closing of his argument, he begins to talk about heaven. And Paul argues in verse 50 that we who are flesh and blood, we who are perishable, we aren't fit for the climate of heaven. You see, friends, heaven is an entirely different reality. Across the Bible, heaven isn't, isn't, isn't a place that we just go to. Heaven is a reality that comes down to earth. It isn't static. It's probably better imagined as an explosive reality that is ready and waiting to erupt and, and just sweep out over all things. But this reality of heaven at the moment is currently being held back and temporarily in check by the power and might of the will of God. 
But one day, this explosive reality of heaven will be released and everything in its path will be transformed in a blink of an eye, in an instant, at the sound of a trumpet. Everything will be transformed and that includes death. Paul says that death will be swallowed up so completely that nothing will bear its mark ever again. See, friends, if the entry of death into the world was something like a black hole, which is collapsing everything in and on on itself, bending everything out of shape with its gravitational pull, then the reality of heaven is like a supernova moments before it explodes. And when this reality of heaven finally erupts over all time and the universe, everything that's not prepared for the brilliance of its light will be consumed. That's heaven. That's the biblical picture of heaven. And if you want to learn more about that, jump online, look at our Weekend Away talks from earlier this year. But it will be, heaven will be, as C.S. Lewis described, too bright for the world to bear. Too bright for the world to bear. That's the language of heaven breaking into the world. And that's why, friends, we can't be the way that we currently are. We've got to be prepared Our bodies have to be transformed. We must become spiritual, supernatural beings. Those that are transformed and powered by the Spirit of God. Why? Well, the Apostle tells us in verse 50, he says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. See, friends, our present bodies aren't able to inhabit a heavenly existence. Just as an acorn in its seed form must be raised to an oak tree in order to support an entire ecosystem of hummingbirds, so must we be raised into our resurrection bodies in order to inhabit heaven. Friends, in other words, our resurrection bodies has a really, really important function. It's the bodily transformation that God gives us in order that we might dwell and enjoy Him forever in the reality of heaven. I love, that. I love that Paul uses the language of inheritance to help us anticipate this transformation. Right? We're already in the family, and inheritance is coming. We're already in the family, but we will one day receive from the Father what is of immeasurable worth. What's our inheritance in the kingdom of God? To enjoy God, to relate with Him as He intends us to, completely and personally to further His perfect purposes in this explosive reality of heaven, to enjoy the beauty of restored and intimate relationship with Him and with others. That is ours if we're in Christ and can only be received in its entirety when God raises us from the dead bodily. Friends, the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. Our resurrection bodies have such an important function in the future reality of heaven. But Paul doesn't finish there, does he? You know, it's pretty lofty that if, he, if he just put the full stop there and then moved on to chapter 16, but he doesn't. See, Paul remains really grounded. He doesn't end there just hoping and waiting for heaven to erupt on earth and not doing very much in the meantime. The fact that this is going to happen leads him to give directions to the Corinthians as they wait for this eruption of heaven. There's a present effect of knowing that our futures are bodily and raised. Knowing that our futures are filled with splendor, glory, and will be imperishable has present effect. 
And see it here as the Apostle Paul closes this chapter. He says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, verse 58, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. See, at the end of all that Paul has talked about in the resurrection of the body, both last week at the beginning of chapter 15 and this week, this is Paul's call towards the believers. Stand firm, he says. Give yourselves to the work of the Lord. This labor is not in vain. Now, uh, I wonder... I wonder um, Maybe for some of you who are in community groups, when you discussed this particular part of the Bible this week, uh, what did you decide giving yourselves fully to the work of the Lord meant? What did you end up concluding uh, that? What did you end up concluding about what Paul is talking about here? See, a really, really important principle that we've got to keep in mind as we read the Bible is that we don't want to read Scripture to fit principles that we know are true into parts of Scripture that actually aren't talking about those principles. Does that make sense? We don't, we don't want to be reading into things that we know is true in other parts of the Bible into places that aren't, aren't actually talking about those same principles. See, Southwest, it can be really tempting to read verse 58 and move fairly quickly into thinking that everything that we do in this life is the work of the Lord. Because after all, there are good biblical reasons to believe that God cares about all our lives and that everything matters to Him. And so we live life, so as we live our lives restoring order in the fallen world, as we love others, as we manage others under our care well, as we develop and train minds, restore wounds, heal physical brokenness, maybe all those things are works of the Lord. And so if that's the case and we conclude that, then we quickly move to, well, how do we remain firm in everything that we do? How do we give ourselves fully to to everything that we do? But the problem with that, as I said earlier, is that we're moving into the territory of reading God's Word to say what we think it might be saying because it might be a true biblical principle elsewhere instead of actually working out what Paul is trying to say. See, what is Paul saying when he talks about the work of the Lord? What is he referring to as he speaks of the labor in the Lord? I want to put to you that Paul is talking about the specific work of Christian ministry, not the general lives of Christians, the specific work of Christian ministry that is making people disciples of Jesus and to build His church. That's what Paul's talking about here. There are at least a few reasons for it. I'll I'll give you a few uh, really quickly. If you flick back to verse 10 and 11 of 1 Corinthians 15, if you flick back to verses 10 to 11 of 1 Corinthians 15, um, you're going to see some parallels with those verses and verse 58. There are, there are themes of laboring, themes of vain, of things that are not in vain there. Um, you, we don't see it as much in the NIV, the translation we've got here. But both verse 10 and verse 58 use the same vocabulary in the ancient language. But in verse 10 to 11, Paul is clearly, if you just read it, Paul is clearly talking about the ministry of preaching and making disciples. It's very specific what Paul's talking about. He's talking about preaching and and. and and making disciples, that's what's labor. That's not what's not in vain. Another reason is if you flick to the next chapter, in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 10, we'll see Paul talk about his prodigy, Timothy, as one who is carrying on the work of the Lord. Right? Just as he is, just as Paul is. See, Paul's referring to something, again, specific that both he does and Timothy does. That is, they both build the church. 
That is the work of the Lord Paul's referring to. And one more thing, one more reason. It makes a lot of sense that this is what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. See, God's going to raise and transform the dead in Christ. We've talked about that. We all will be transformed as heaven breaks through and explodes across the universe into an imperishable existence. So why is the making of disciples and the building of the church the work and labor of the Lord? Why is it not in vain? Well, it's because that work is directed to people. And from that people, some will be raised imperishable. Some will never die again. Some will never be swallowed up by death. That's the work of the Lord. That's labor not in vain. And so Paul is very specifically talking about standing firm and giving fully to making disciples of Jesus and building of God's church as the work of the Lord. And so what do we do with our, our other parts of our lives? The general part of Christian living that we're given and doing and doing responsibly. What do we do? What do we do about those things? Well, all those things are good things. We should do them. They are clear ways we worship God and love others. But we've just got to keep in mind that that's not what Paul's talking about here at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We don't want to dilute what he's saying. And so what does that mean for us here at Southwest Evangelical Church? What do we do with this information? What do we do with what Paul compels the Corinthians to do in light of everything that he's talked about? How do we do more of the work of the Lord? How do we do more of the labor of the Lord? This work that never is in vain. Or should we just employ more ministers to do the work of the Lord? You know, get more marshals. Get more, you know, our Mandarin pastors, Stevens. Get more Pete's. Is that how we should do the work of the Lord? Well, the answer Paul gives is in verse 58, isn't it? What does Paul say? Have a look again. He says that right at the beginning, Therefore, my brothers and sisters. Therefore, my brothers and sisters. See, this isn't Paul talking to ministers. This is to the church, the entire church at Corinth. And to them he says, always give yourself, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. See, friends, this is a call for every person who calls themselves a Christian. If you follow Jesus Christ, you are called into His work of following and building His church. You are called to gospel proclaiming. You are called to building up and encouraging. You are called to this specific work. I love that we are seeing so many in our church already doing this, especially recently, and are excited about this. And a prayer is those who serve God by shepherding you is, that, is to urge you all towards this. Don't, don't tack this specific work on just to what you do day to day or week to week. This is important stuff. Pray diligently, think thoughtfully, act purposefully to gospel proclamation and to the building of the church. This labor is not in vain. This labor concerns the imperishable, glorious, heaven-erupting work that will last for all eternity. And so as I close and as I invite the band up, um, I want you, just for a second, now turn to the people around you. Have a look. Seriously, have a look. Turn. I want to see heads moving, right? <clears throat> around you today, around you today are many people who uh, look pretty normal, myself included. Look pretty ordinary. But you know what? Those same people will one day shine like stars forever. The day will come when many who are here will live forever. 
immortal, imperishable, glorious. This is why the making of disciples, the building of the church, is work that all Christians are called to. And that work is never in vain. We will never regret a moment of service to the Lord and to building His church. We won't regret it, even once. For the day will come when the trumpet will sound and the kingdom of God will erupt in our midst and everything will be changed. Let me pray. Father God, we are so thankful for what you have in store for us. Father, as we look at our own bodies and we look at that it's prone to sickness, prone to injury, prone to decay, Father, we are so looking forward to the body that you have in store for us. We thank you that it will have a form that is physical, that is relational, that is personal. Father, we thank you that uh, we get to be with you, imperishable and glorious in the reality of heaven erupting over earth. And so, Father, help us to see what is to come and drive us to do what work and labor will last for eternity. Help us, Holy Spirit, to prioritize and to give perspective to the way that you see things, Father God. We pray that this church would be marked by a, uh, just a, a desire uh, to see that lived out here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.